2.1 billion. That's a pretty big number. If you counted one number every second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you about 70 years to count to 2.1 billion. 2.1 billion people around the world claim the name of Jesus today. And 2.1 billion is just a fraction of the number of people who have followed Jesus for the last 2,000 years. But this worldwide family of believers began with only a small number of committed individuals who had an encounter with a power larger than themselves. That handful of people went from being faces in the crowd to active parts of a movement that would change the course of humanity forever. Through the Spirit of God, we have the potential for great things. Jesus has empowered each one of us to change the course of history. It's up to us to take on that challenge. The founders of the early church were not anything special on their own. They were ordinary people who encountered an extraordinary power and responded in obedience. That's their origin story. What's yours? Okay, first things first, most importantly, how about them raptors? No. And I, I want you to know, I've been a Raptors fan for a long time. I'm not a, I'm a bandwagoner, I'm not uh, you know, just hopping on board now. I, I know all the players, I know uh, Cowie Leonard, I know him, and I know Kyle Lowry. I mean, they, they are very, very good at their jobs, and they can put that ball in the basket, boy, and that is the point of the basketball. And so, very clearly know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Hey, if you're brand new with us here at Bayview, you picked a great Sunday to be here because what we've been doing over the last uh, several weeks is uh, taking a look at our mission as a church, why we exist at all, and also our vision, kind of this dot out on the horizon that we uh, endeavor to, to get to and see, and, and then the values, the, the behaviors that kind of govern us and shape us as we pursue our mission and vision. And, and those aren't new things. They don't exist in a vacuum. We didn't just pull them out of our ear, but in fact, for the last 2,000 years of church history, the church has endeavored to achieve this very same mission and this very same vision and values, and, and our current reality at Bayview Glen is really shaped by our origin story. That small group of believers in first century Jerusalem, a bunch of ordinary people that experienced an extraordinary power and really lit the world on fire and, 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 and Christianity spread like wildfire all over the Roman Empire and now 2.1 billion and counting people that say they follow Jesus across the globe. I, I mean, this vision and mission that we have now is, is again, it's rooted in our origin story. And so that's what, that's what we've been seeking to do over the last several weeks. And, and so as a reminder, uh, our, our mission is this, is that we work together so that everyone everywhere can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. This is the reason why Bayview Glen Church exists at all. This is why we gather. This is why we uh, love one another. This is why we serve one another. This is what we do, why we do ministry programs. And everything that we do is an, an opportunity and a desire from our hearts to work together so that everyone everywhere, GT, and beyond can experience God's extraordinary, extravagant, and unconditional love for them 
and the created purpose he has for their life. But the mission statement is kind of why we exist. Like, why are you even here? That's it. The vision statement, it's kind of a dot out on the calendar on the horizon. We say, well, here's where we want to get to. Here's what we want to see. And what we want to see is by 2030, a family of 6,000 disciples. That's 11 years from now, 10 and a half. A family of 6,000 disciples. And we've defined this term elsewhere with the four Ds of discipleship, postures and practices. You might be familiar with those. If not, they're up on our website. You can grab those. We're going to be a family of 6,000 with 3,000 folks in life groups and 3,000 folks on serve teams. That's where we want to head. And as we pursue that mission and as we endeavor to, to accomplish that vision, there are some behaviors that will govern us and shape us as we do that. And, and those behaviors are Jesus first. Jesus first in terms of timeline. Jesus first in our worship. Jesus first because he's preeminent and exalted. And that's the reason that we gather it all. Jesus will be first here. Second thing is that everybody's somebody at Bayview Glen Church. You were made in the image of God. You have extraordinary and intrinsic value because God created you just how he wanted you. You are valuable to him, loved by him enough that he would send his son to die for you so he would redeem you. Everybody is a somebody here. Would you turn around and say hi to somebody? Tell them everybody's somebody here at Bayview Glen. Tell them you're a somebody. If that person next to you is cute and single, say, you're a somebody I'd like to get to know better. Somebody I'd like to take to coffee sometime. Value number three is this, is that we are better together. If that person was cute and single, turn next to him and say, we might be better together. And this is the value that we're talking about this morning is that as believers, you are awesome as an individual, but we're even better when we're together. We're even better for the mission of God. We're even better when we're together. In fact, this is exactly how God designed you and me to work together and live together and function together as human beings and even especially as Christians. So this morning, essentially, we're, we're talking about this value, better together. We're talking about biblical community. But I want you to know that biblical community is the church's nagging injury. Over the last 2,000 years, we haven't been great at biblical community all the time. We, we've fallen on our face quite a bit. We've tripped up quite a bit. Let me, let me explain to you what, what I mean by a nagging injury. Uh, I, I was barbecuing out on my patio a couple weeks ago. Remember the, the little cow, the little baby cow that Kaya met on the field trip? That cow. We're barbecuing that cow, the cute one. <laughs> The frisky one, right? Barbecuing that cow, and I ran out of propane. Is that not the worst when you're grilling and you run out of propane halfway through? I'm like, oh, man, darn it to heck is what I said. And I, and I ran through the house, out the front, and I, and I bound down the steps to get in the car. I'm like, aim, I gotta go run, get propane. And I hit, uh, and my foot planted on that last step, and my ankle just went, turned right over. Man, it hurts so bad. And here's the thing, for most of you, you wouldn't have had a problem with that step. You'd have been just fine. But my ankle turned over because for 20 years, I've had a nagging ankle injury. When I was in university playing soccer, I turned my ankle over and, and I could have sworn I heard that sound. You know when you blow up a paper bag or a plastic bag and you go, pow, 
Like, I, that's the sound that I could have swore that I heard, and I, and I got lightheaded. I mean, I really blew up my ankle, and since then, when I get fatigued, or even at the end of the day, I just be walking on flat ground. Amy will watch me, and I'll just go, whoa, like this. She's like, what happens? Like, just, my ankle just buckles, just buckles. It's a nagging injury, and so I always have to be mindful of it, always have to rehab it, always have to kind of remind myself to put it back into place, and focus, and make sure it doesn't turn over. See, this is what's happened with biblical community for the last 2,000 years. Because Jesus explicitly said, here's what I want you to do together. This is how you're supposed to work together. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has sometimes kind of tripped up and gone, ah, let's get, we got to remember what Jesus said. The church has stepped on, and yeah, it turns over again. Yeah, that hurt. Yeah, yeah, that hurt. Okay, let's just take a step back, slow down, and remember exactly what Jesus said about biblical community. And we've just always kind of, you know, when it gets off the rails, we gotta just bring it back in. When we injure it again, we gotta just rehab it and bring it back in. This is something that we work towards. We're not perfect at it. And so when I say that Jesus told us explicitly what he wants for biblical community, it's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, uh, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Now, you may not know that Jesus is talking about biblical community there, but he absolutely is. I'm going to show you here in a minute. But when, when you picture this, here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture three circles. And, and I told Dave Lewis this last night. I said, I have three concentric circles. And he said, Luke, those are not concentric. That is a Venn diagram is what that is. And I'm so glad that he corrected me or I would have said something stupid this morning and basically demonstrated that I cannot pass an English proficiency exam. Oh, oh, you guys, you guys. I passed my English proficiency exam. Yes, thank you so much. You're so sweet. Beside the point, there's nothing to do with the sermon. Okay, so here's when, I, when you think of biblical community, I want you to think of these three circles, the Venn diagram, and right here in the middle where they all intersect, this is the sweet spot of biblical community. So the first thing, first circle that Jesus talks about, he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And he says, he says, you, and throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is very interesting, Jesus switches back and forth between the singular and plural of that word you. Sometimes it's singular, sometimes it's plural. And it's really strategic because sometimes Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to you, he's talking to you, he's talking to you, he's talking to you, you, you. But right here, it's plural. And he says, as we say in Texas, y'all, right? It's plural. He says, you all are the salty earth. You all, it's not just you by yourself, it's y'all. Every, everyone, that's the original Greek, y'all. It's y'all, right? It's y'all are the light of the world. You all together are the light of the world. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Indeed, it's impossible to live the Christian life alone. You're meant to do it in conjunction with others. Second thing Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Okay, and I've heard people say this. It's like, oh, salt adds taste to food. And that's what Jesus is like. We add flavor to the world. Okay, 2,000 years ago, nobody was eating like lamb and going, you know what this needs? Salt. Nobody said that. So that's not what Jesus means by this. But what they did use salt for was to be a preservative for meat so it didn't go bad. 
Jesus is saying in the very same way, you're the salt of the earth. You are the moral preservative to bring kingdom values into the world where there are not kingdom values. Goodness, kindness, generosity, grace, all those things. You're the salt of the earth. And he also says you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You're supposed to shine the light of hope and shine the light of the gospel to all and for all to see. So the so, so second circle Jesus wants us to see is, is that it's about the good news about Jesus. This is not just something we do together. We just gather together for no apparent reason. We gather together because we are, ladies and gentlemen, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And we are the salt that preserves the world around us, that, 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 that brings kingdom values and, and preserves them where there are no kingdom values. Third circle that Jesus wants us to see, watch. He says, uh, you are the light of the, or you're the salt of the earth. Next slide. If salt has lost its taste, how can it be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, if salt doesn't actually come in contact with meat, then it's not good for anything. You just throw it out on the ground. People run over. It's not, it's not good for anything. He says the same thing about light. He says, look, you're the light of the world. City on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light on a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. I want you to know, this is like comedy Jesus here. It really is like stand-up comedy Jesus. Like, you know, who are these people that put a light in a house? You know, like, he's like, a, he's like Jerry Seinfeld. Like, and, and people would have laughed at this. We're like, yeah, that's silly, that's ridiculous. Like, who lights a lamp and then puts a basket on top? He, say, he says, in the same way, you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt has to come in contact with meat. Light has to come in contact with darkness. You have to come in contact with culture, is what Jesus says. This is our third, next slide, please, our third uh, uh, of our Venn diagram. So Christian community, this is how we're supposed to live. Together, bringing the good news to culture. Right here in the middle, that's the sweet spot where we are salt and light in the world, just as Jesus commanded us to do. So Jesus dies, resurrects, sends into heaven, and about 15 minutes later, the church messes it up. I mean, it just didn't take them that long. Because the first thing they did was hide out in an upper room in Jerusalem, right? First thing they did, Jesus blows through, power of the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in tongues, sharing the gospel, and, and people all over Jerusalem is get, are getting converted. And, and so the, the Christians say, oh, great, people are getting converted to Christianity, and Jerusalem is changing. Let's just stay here. Because, of course, you know that Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and make disciples and stay there. No. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. You're a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You've got salt. You've got to come in contact with me. You've got to get into culture. And so God does this really cool thing that I like to call circumstantial motivation. It came in the form of persecution is what it came in the form of. And the religious leaders started to persecute the early church, and they were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire started to persecute the church. And people were running and hiding all over the Roman Empire. It's as if God took a little dandelion and went like this. You're all hiding out in Jerusalem. I'm just going to go with persecution. And the seeds of the gospel went all over the Roman Empire and let the world on fire. But in the beginning of the fourth century, all that persecution stopped. We've been talking about it under Domitian and Diocletian and Nero. All that persecution stopped with a man named Constantine. It's critical that we understand this. 
because Constantine at the time was the most powerful man in the Roman Empire. In fact, he was just about to become emperor, but what he needed to do was defeat this other dude who wanted to be emperor too. So the night before the big battle right there, uh, the Battle of Milvian Bridge on the, on the Tiber River, Constantine went out the night before and he said, oh God, you help me win this thing and I will follow you. Now listen, you've prayed that prayer before, haven't you? Oh God, you help me pass this test and I swear, right? Oh God, Please stop me from vomiting, and I swear I will never drink again. You prayed that prayer, haven't you? It's what Constantine prayed, except he kept his promise, okay? You didn't, but he did. He kept his promise. So he goes out and he prays, God, help me win this battle, and if you do, I'll, I'll, I'll follow you. So as the story goes, I don't know if this actually happened, but as the story goes, Constantine sees a vision in the sky of a cross, and underneath it, the words, in this sign, conquer. So what he did was he told all his soldiers to take the first two letters of Christos, Christ in Greek, and paint them on all your shields. It's called the Cairo. They painted them on all their shields. They went into this battle. They won. And Constantine converted to Christianity. The next year issued the Edict of Milan that made Christianity a religio licita, in other words, a legal religion under the Roman Empire. And when the most powerful man in the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, lots of other rich and powerful people came with him. And all of a sudden, instead of Christianity being this organic thing that was spreading all over the Roman Empire, people were giving huge amounts of money to build really big basilicas all over the Roman Empire. You've probably visited some of those, or at least seen them in pictures. And the persecution stopped. It was a really good thing that Christians weren't being thrown to the lions. But over time, instead of an organic and contextualized church of these small groups of people meeting all over the Roman Empire in homes and in tombs and all that stuff, the church became centralized and not contextualized. Instead of go be the church, it became come to church. Instead of uh, be salt and light in the world, it's like, let's just gather all the salt here and not let it become in contact with the meat. <laughs> let's just gather all the light here and it's not going to come into contact with the dark. And this wasn't a very good thing. Initially, great, because the Christians weren't getting persecuted anymore, but eventually the church became centralized and not contextualized. And this was not Jesus' vision for biblical community. And then in the year 800 AD, something else happened that was really, really critical is that uh, Pope Leo III crowned a man named Charlemagne, I almost said Champagne Poppy, I don't think that's right, um, Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor, and, and the church and the state got married with Charlemagne. In other words, the church became institutionalized and not organic. The church became institutionalized and not organic. So this was no longer kind of the church uh, out in culture bringing the good news about Jesus together. It was about uh, not, not that we change culture, but that we, we, we define culture because we are the church and the state and, and we are married up together, together. The church became institutionalized and not organic. And when the church became hierarchical, and institutionalized and centralized. This Venn diagram that Jesus kind of set up for us in Matthew chapter five just kind of went out the window. 
This was no longer about changing culture. It was about ordering people around. This was no longer about the good news, but it became about power and retaining power and power structures. It was no longer about doing this together. It was about individuals saying, I am the sole owner and holder of the word of God and the truth of God, and, and, and you can't read it yourselves. You can't know it yourselves. You can't apply it yourselves. You have to come to me to apply it. And so much so that by the 13th and 14th centuries, Bibles were literally chained to pulpits. You, you can't take, you just could take a Bible home now, take a Bible, take a Bible from our pew back, take it home. You couldn't back then because people said, we control all of this. And it's in Latin, you can't even read it because they wanted complete control. And instead of those three circles meeting together, we're going, we take the good news together into culture. It became institutionalized, hierarchical, and centralized. And a group of folks called the Reformers came along and began to talk about change. It's where we get the five solas, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, like a grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone, like all of these things, scripture alone came from the reformers. But one of the biggest things that the reformers did, a man named John Wycliffe, as a matter of fact, said, you know what? I'm going to translate the Bible into a language people can actually read. <gasps> and the hierarchical, institutionalized, centralized power structure said, well, that's not okay. In fact, in fact, they condemned Wycliffe as a heretic. The church condemned him as a heretic. And he was already dead. He died of a stroke. He was already dead. So they exhumed his body, removed it from the church burial grounds, and burned him. He was already dead just for translating the Bible into English. And Jan Hus translated the Bible from English into the Czech language so people in the Czech Republic could read it. And they burned him at the stake for it. Why? Because all of a sudden these guys thought, you know what? This institutionalized hierarchical thing, that's not what Jesus intended. What he intended is that we would be contextualized, that we would send the gospel into neighborhoods together and work together and get the Bible into people's hands. And that was what their vision was And the church killed him for it, or in Wycliffe's case, double killed him, because he was already dead. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and the founding of the New World uh, in the United States, and then in the British Empire, things kind of went a similar direction. The church and the state were kind of interconnected and institutionalized in a lot of ways. And, and, and we talk about, especially in the United States, where I'm from, it being a Christian nation. And I really like foundational principles, like biblical principles, kind of governing a nation and a business and a plumber. Like, I like that. I, I'm excited about that. But when those two things are kind of married up together and people think that they are Christian just because they were born in Montana, well, that's, that doesn't, you know, we used to joke in Scottsdale, the very first thing you have to do in order to convince someone to become a Christian is to convince them that they're not already one, just because they're American, right? Same thing happened in the British Empire, these big churches being built, and instead of contextualization of ministry and people going with the good news together into culture, being salt and light, people were hiding out in these religious enclaves and completely rejecting this mission that Jesus had us on. And a man came along named Leslie Newbigin, and this guy's a fascinating guy because he was a Presbyterian pastor just after World War I in England. 
And uh, Leslie Newbegin and his wife uh, moved to India to become missionaries in India. And for 40, 50 years, they were missionaries in India, getting the Bible into people's hands, helping them to work together to get the, the gospel into culture and to transform culture. And then after 40, 50 years, he returned to his home country of England and he goes, Man, I, I, I was already I was always told that this was kind of a, 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 a Christian nation, but this is not Christian. Because people are hiding out and, and not interacting with culture, not transforming culture. And, 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 and we've got to get them back into culture and send them back in together with the good news. That definition of biblical community that we looked at from Matthew chapter 5. Newbegin went all the way to say this about the modern church. He said, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave. But to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Listen, listen to me, men and women of God. Here's what's happening, and I'll show you another example. Here's what's happening. This is the church dealing with this nagging injury. This is the church tripping up when it comes to biblical community and going, well, we gotta get it back on track. This is the church tripping up when it comes to mission and saying, oh, we gotta get it back on track. Same thing happened uh, right around the same time in the United States with a man named Sam Shoemaker, uh, Sam Shoemaker, uh, again, was a, was a pastor and, and noticed that in the Pittsburgh area, w- what was happening was people were hiding out in churches and not on mission in neighborhoods and not making any difference in culture. So Sam Shoemaker goes, you know what? Here's what we ought to do. We ought to like, you know, start a bunch of like small groups of people that are meeting in homes all over the all over the Pittsburgh area. It's called the Pittsburgh Experiment. Now you may not have heard of Sam Shoemaker, but you may have heard of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham once said that no man has made more difference for God in this generation than Sam Shoemaker. And it was because he empowered people to read the Bible on their own, to surrender their lives, to serve the culture, and to bring the good news where there was not good news, to bring salt where there needed to be salt, to bring light into darkness. This is what Sam Shoemaker did. In fact, a, a man named Bill got saved in one of those uh, small groups of people that were on mission all over Pittsburgh. That man, Bill, went on to start Alcoholics Anonymous and credited Sam Shoemaker with all the principles that founded Alcoholics Anonymous. But unfortunately, what happened is that in the 80s and 90s, uh, not not the like 80s and 90s like AD, but like 1980s and 1990s, you with me? 1980s and 1990s, especially in the Western Hemisphere, especially especially in in North America, this model of church kind of began to rise up called attractional church. The idea there was we're going to run Sunday morning services that are going to attract people to come. And they're going to have great music, and it's going to be funny, and we're going to do a video. So I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any, I don't have any issue with that. As long as the gospel's being preached and the Bible's being preached, I'm fine with that stuff. I'm, I'm, I like it that it's like fun here. You know what I mean? I, I like it that the music's good. Well, this morning was okay. But you, I mean, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. How good was it? Like, I like that. I'm good with that. As long as the gospel's being preached and the Bible's being preached. But unfortunately, what happened with these attractional churches is that they got really big and they thought, you know what? Here's what we need. We, we, we're not retaining our visitors very well. I mean, they come in, they're here for a couple weeks, they're here for a couple months, and then they're out the door. We need a program that is going to help us retain our visitors. And they look back at Sam Shoemaker's model of just these small groups of people meeting all over the Pittsburgh area in contextualized ministry, bringing the good news together. 
And they said, we're gonna adopt that model. And all of a sudden, small groups became a proper name. Uh, instead of a small group of people on mission with the gospel, this, this thing, small groups, it became a church program. It became a visitor retention policy and program. And it was no longer about mission, but it was, again, about creating a religious enclave so that salt and meat don't come together, so that light and dark don't come together. And if we take back a look at our, our Venn diagram here, what happened with the small group culture in the 80s and 90s was that they were doing the together piece and they were doing the good news piece, but they forgot about the bridge into culture piece. In fact, uh, how small groups started with Sam Shoemaker and, and those type of guys, I would say that that is an excellent and, 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 and intrinsically biblical model for ministry. I would also tell you that what small groups have morphed into in many churches, not all, many churches is an irresponsible and unbiblical way to do ministry. And you know why? Why? Here's, here's the reason why. Because go back one. Go back one. They forgot. Go back one. Go back forward one. Back one. Forward one. <laughs> go back to the Venn diagram. I'm messing with the guys upstairs. It's so fun. They forgot this part. This is critical. This is critical. If salt doesn't come into contact with me, it's no good to anybody. It's just gonna be trampled. If light doesn't come into contact with dark, it's no good. It's as silly as lighting a lamp in your house, putting a lampshade on top of it. That's silly. And look, it's not just me that thinks that the modern iteration of small group movement is not helpful and not responsible. It's the very founders of the small group movement. Because the man who took over for Sam Shoemaker in the Pittsburgh experiment, doing small groups that like all of modern small groups kind of built on the Sam Shoemaker thing, the man who took over for him, look what he says. It's up here on the screen. At least it should be great. The biggest danger of the small group movement is that as individual members begin to get changed, they sometimes tend to form pious cliques. You ever seen that before? That meet only to mirror their own goodness. Now that hurts. Ooh. Watch, it gets worse. <laughs> and under the guise of study, we're, we're doing Bible study. Bible study. It's good study. They withdraw from the world and rather than seek to be used by God to become his lights and darkened situations of our communities. These are founders of the small group movement. Say, look, when you forget culture, you compromise what Jesus wanted to do. Same thing with good news. You forget the good news, all you're doing is together and culture, you might as well be the pickleball team that meets around the corner from my house. Or if you're just doing culture and good news, that means you're isolated and you're not together with other believers. That's not how God designed you. It's gotta be all three, those circles coming together. That's the sweet spot of biblical community. This is why by 2030, Bayview Glen Church desires to be a family of 6,000 disciples with 3,000 in life groups because that is what life groups are. We seek here at Bayview Glen, next slide, to be a family of people that receive life from God, share life with one another, and bring life to the community around us. We're not perfect at it. We mess it up. Life groups don't always do all of these things really well, but we're trying real hard. The reason that we do those things is instead of doing generational ministry, instead of doing gender-specific ministry, is because we believe that together we're better at bringing the good news into culture. 
And life groups, I want you to know those small groups of people are multi, not mono. Are multi, not mono. What do I mean by multi? Multi-ethnic, multi-generational, to the best of our ability, multi-gender. Because here's the thing. When you gather up with a bunch of people who are of the same ilk and the same life stage and think the same as you, you're not actually achieving biblical unity. You're just gathering around a commonly held purpose or value or life stage. And when you're not multi, when you're mono and not multi, you miss out on some of the best stuff. Young people, when you don't have old people in your life, you miss out in a big way. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I got a friend in the congregation, one of my favorites here. And I'm not, I'm not supposed to have favorites, right? But she's my favorite, okay? She's 90. And she sends me an email a few weeks ago. And the subject of the email says, I hope you find this funny and not offensive. And I thought, well, this is gonna be good, right? It's gonna be good. So I read the email, and here's the email. She said, I wanted to share a joke with you. Here's the joke. 90-year-old woman calls a pastor late one night. Pastor answers his phone and says, what's up, what's up? How can I help? What's going on? 90-year-old woman says, I, Pastor, I can't sleep. I'm just so restless, and I've been in bed, and I've tossed and turned, and I just can't sleep. I just can't get myself to go to sleep. And the pastor says, oh, my gosh, what can I do? She said, I need some pastoral care. He says, that's what I'm here for. I want to care for you. What can I do? How can I help you sleep? And she says, preach to me, Pastor. I see you. I see you, Marion. We, we finalized Canaan's adoption this week on, on Wednesday, which is a cool thing, yeah? So that's good. So we're in the middle, we're in the middle of court. Uh, we, we appeared in Florida court via video from Markham, right? We're, we're in the middle of court, and the lawyer goes, hey, look, um, here's the deal. Once I sign this paperwork, it's forever. Like, this is, this is done. Like, it's good, okay? So no matter if he grows up to be smarter than you, right? If he grows up to leave the toilet seat up or whatever, and all of a sudden, Kaya, my four-and-a-half-year-old, yells in the middle of open court, not appropriate. <laughs> Calls out this attorney. The judge loses it. Judge cries. We're all laughing hysterically. Look, when you do this, you get 90-year-old jokes on email. When you do that, you get to hang around with my kids and other people's kids. When you do this, you miss out, and so does everybody else. So we strategically create life groups that are this and not that. This is why we don't do like a young marrieds class. Like everybody who's just been married in the last year, let's get them all together and hang out together. That's stupid. It's the blind leading the blind. I mean, those people, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. You've been around. Hey, anybody who's been married for any more than a year, we go like, I don't, they don't need to be around. In fact, we need to separate them. <laughs> That's why we don't do that. Number two, life groups are contextualized, not centralized. That's why we endeavor to get them all into neighborhoods so salt can meet meat and so light can meet dark. Contextualized, not centralized. And, and number three is that that good news piece, it's not just news. But the good news about Jesus is, in fact, great news. Not just so your soul can go to heaven when you die, but so that your entire life can be transformed by the power of the gospel. It's great news. As men and women of God, here is our value that the church has worked very, very hard the last 2,000 years and hasn't always been great 
at it. But our value that we are going to strive and aspire to is to be better together. Every time we gather, everything we do, we are better together. Why? Because we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So, so let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us, uh, use our metaphor this morning, continue to address that nagging injury that's kind of a pain sometimes, but we gotta remember the vision for biblical community, make adjustments in our life, systematically reorganize our life so that we walk in the Jesus way. And, and the result is that we would run with endurance the race that is set before us. Men and women, just remember, this is who we are. We are working together so that everyone everywhere can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. And what will govern our behavior in that process is that Jesus will be first. Everybody's a somebody here at Bayview Glen. And the third is we are better together. And so we're gonna strive to do that. Value number four is coming next week. Would you pray with me? God, I feel uh, like for many of us uh, and, f- and for even the church over the last 2,000 years and, and, and the, the current reality of who we are in, in North America and here in Toronto that we forget the culture piece. We forget it or we neglect it or we downplay it. But God, that doesn't mean that everybody in this room leans kind of away from that culture piece. God, sometimes we just lean away from the good news. Sometimes we're together in culture, but we forget about your son, Jesus. Sometimes, God, we're bringing the gospel into culture, but we're not doing it together with other believers. So God, in this moment, would you maybe impress upon our hearts one thing, just one thing we can shift, one thing we can change, one text message we can send, one phone call we can make, one way that we can change the way our Monday is shaping up so that we could address whatever area we're stumbling in, that maybe it's the together area. Maybe we need to reach out to somebody else in the Christian community and say, would you walk this journey with me? Maybe it's the good news of preaching ourselves a gospel every day and reminding ourselves the good news of the kingdom. Maybe, maybe God, it is the culture piece. And we've forgotten that Christian communities are designed and empowered and on mission to be salt and light. God, may we today not be like a man who looks himself in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. May we be people who read your word, understand it, and then make a change so that we can be more like you. Thank you for your grace to us, O oh God, and for your presence here in this place. In Christ's name.